sacrifices. By being a minoritized or marginalized group in the United States, there are often sacrifices we make to achieve a goal we believe is even more valuable. In the case of Latinx communities, what might be some of the sacrifices, and at the heart of it all, what is being achieved and for whom? For Latina psychologists considering a career in academia, what are the strategies to consider that will enable them to achieve their goals? How can we all support each other's journey? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Sun. As part of our Hispanic Heritage series. I am honored to have Dr. Fiorella Carlos Chavez as our guest today. Dr. Chavez is an assistant professor in community health at Edson College of Nursing and health innovation at the Arizona State University, an author of several research articles focusing on Latinx adolescent health and well being, and former editor for the National Latinx Psychological Association newsletter. Dr. Chavez has been awarded the annual postdoctoral teaching award, several dissertation awards, and recently awarded the 2023 National Latinx Psychological Association Distinguished Professional Early Career Award. Dr. Chavez is an expert in qualitative and mixed methodologies to understand the implications of culture, family, and work life related stressors on Latino migrant youth well-being. In 2020, Dr. Chavez received a COVID-19 needs assessment grant from the National Urban League to focus on the effects of stress and household food insecurity on Latinx youth and essential workers' mental health. As a Peruvian human development and family scientist, Dr. Chavez will be discussing normalizing the experience of academia for people of color, as well as her research on work-life stressors and health among Latino migrant youth and the U.S. agriculture. Dr. Chavez, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Also, congratulations on the Early Career Award. Thank you. That was a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> Why don't you start off by just telling me how did you get into this work? Yes, so it's interesting how I ended up in academia and with a focus on mental health in migrant populations because when I was in college, and I did my college in the U.S., I was born in Peru, but I, I came to the U.S. as an international student for my undergraduate education. And I wanted to be a stockbroker. I wanted to be a Wall Street stockbroker, you know, like beat the market and everything. That's what I wanted to do. And I actually got even an investment license after college. And I was working in finance and investments. And I realized um, it was a very difficult time. It was 2007, 2008, uh, right around the housing bubble. And I knew that was not my calling because I cared too much about the people who were worried about their retirement savings, about their investments. And I realized right then that this is not for me. I, I cared too much 
I worry too much about other people's funding and, and money that that was my 2007, 2008, that was my wake up call that maybe this is not the right path for me. Maybe there's something else that I need to be doing. And it took me a while, about five years. I was working in the US. I was working in Peru as a teacher, as a consultant for an American company. I was taking on different uh, ventures and see finding my place in the world, so to speak. And I started teaching. And funny enough, when I shared the story to my friends from high school, they always knew, oh, yes, you were going to be a teacher, some type of educator. Like we, we all knew that. And it's funny because I didn't know. I didn't know that my calling was going to be on, on research, on, on teaching, on mentoring students, pushing them or helping get them to the finish line. But my peers from high school knew that. So it was, it was interesting, you know, the, the journey of where I wanted to, what I thought I wanted to do, what, what I actually ended up doing. So in 20, 2012, I came back to the U.S. and I went to California and I did my master's in counseling with a concentration at the time in marriage and family therapy. But it was a two-year, very intense program in counseling at the School of Education and Counseling Psychology at San Diego State University. And that was a very, very good program. I saw clients my entire two years, hours a week of practicum, at least 20 hours. And I realized there was so much need in the Latino community. I mean, this is over 10 years ago. I cannot even imagine now. It was a lot of need. We were going to therapy. It's still is a taboo in our community, but I was a bilingual therapist mm. and I was working with Latino immigrant families, children. I did parent-child therapy. I did adolescent therapy. And it was very, very rewarding. I... That's the kind of thing I you can lose the sleepover, and it was okay. Like I will, you know, work long hours and and take on a lot of cases to see clients. And there was always a waiting list. To this day, there is a waiting list for Latino clients, Latina, Latinx populations to see a therapist, especially because of cultural differences and the language. Some people prefer to speak in Spanish, so I did my sessions in both Spanish and English. That was how I got started on working with mental health and Latino and immigrant populations. And I ended up, I applied to a PhD program at different institutions and I chose to come to Florida State University. Hmm. And did, was, did you have any inclination as to what propelled you to move from a master's into a doctoral because that's getting into more of the academic training because you you know you were describing well feeling very connected to your work serving uh, a community and a population in need and 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 one would think oh this is rewarding i'm getting that experience and then to take that extra layer because we all know doctoral programs you know very costly it's a commitment so yeah well what helped you make that jump? Good question. Actually, it was never my idea. Two faculties, one faculty from my undergraduate program and one faculty, at least two from my master's program, they asked me very bluntly, very directly, if I had 
thought about what my plans were going to be after graduation. And I say, oh, well, I'm going to be a counselor. I'm going to be a therapist. I want to be a clinician. And all of them suggested, well, you know, we recommend that you apply for a PhD program. And I, it didn't even cross my mind. A PhD, and, and you know, I knew it was going to be like more schooling, at least a commitment of four or five years. You know, I wouldn't be working, I'll be studying again. So I, I was very surprised when I heard three faculty within a month. In a month, the three different faculty kept saying the same thing in different ways in different states. So I started to pay attention. I paid attention. Were they BIPOC faculty members? Of them were, yes. One of them was Latina, the other one was Asian, and then the other one was a, a white European lady, yes. And they said, we'll give you the letter of support. And that that really pushed me, because when somebody approaches you and sees talent in you and encourages to do something you hadn't considered before, you should listen, you should pay attention to that. And on top of that, they want to give you a letter without you even asking for the letter. That spoke volumes to me. So I started to apply to different programs. I won't say the name of universities, but I applied to at least one, two, three, four different states. Yes. And the best choice at the time for me was to go to Florida State University. It's interesting that you thought you were going to do stock market trading. And... It's also interesting because there is a little bit of parallel in your current work. See. I mean, it's not about stock market. It has to do with financial well-being. That's interesting, yes, because so now in my work, when I, I, I interview my, my whole research team, when we prepare that, not only the qualitative interviews, the interview guides, but also the survey, the quantitative questionnaire, I always have questions about their finances. What do these migrant kids and migrant populations do with their money? How is that money and funding distributed in their families back home, but also here in the U.S.? What are their long-term goals? So I can see how that mindset definitely drives some of my research. And also because people don't like to talk about that. But I think once you ask somebody a question of what are you planning to do with the money that you're getting from your work in agriculture in the U.S., I think that, you know, that gives people the opportunity to think about and appreciate all the hard work they're putting and that eventually they will be able to, to reap those rewards. Can you share with me some of your research in this area? Yes. So um, currently I have, um, I have a few manuscripts on focusing on Latino migrant farm worker youth or adolescents in agriculture. And my latest paper from June 2023 focuses on the views and potential barriers that these unaccompanied youth face on in the U.S. in terms of access to health, where should they ask for help, if they're not feeling well, if they fall ill. And what's interesting, and I see it across a lot of immigrant populations, especially Latino populations, is that these kids prioritize work over health. Hmm. Their, their families are back in Guatemala or Mexico. These kids are, half of them are undocumented kids. 
the other half are here with the H2A visa, part of the, the an agricultural program to temporarily hire workers with a visa, but it's very restrict. So they don't even know exactly how they can access health services. Where is the nearest clinic? Where can you, you know, who can you ask for help? Who will take you to a hospital? And it's probably in part due to their young age. When you're young, an adolescent, you think, you know, these personal fable, you think nothing's going to happen to you, you're fine. But unfortunately, perhaps it could be too late when actually something really happens and they do need help and need to be taken to the hospital. It will be, you know, the matter like, who am I going to ask for help? My supervisor, my roommates, my peers. And so those were the questions that I asked uh, among 20 kids. And there's different barriers. And there's also this notion of, that work comes first and my health comes second. And to mirror that, family comes first. So basically, my work needs to come first because my family also comes first. If I don't work, I cannot provide the money, the remittances to my family. So it, it is this push and pull of emotions and responsibilities that these kids, as young as 15 years old, are engaging in the United States and they are working. They are not asking for help. They are going to work, they work in the fields, long hours, and they provide for themselves. It is really remarkable what these kids do. And they, I believe they don't fully understand the many lives they're touching by the by their income that they're sending back home. Yeah. Yeah, you're really trying to demonstrate that their labor has a lot of significance within themselves, within their family and their community. And something I thought was very powerful in our conversation prior to the recording is you mentioned this idea that, you know, essentially they are this invisible population that is often overlooked. And in fact, they have a huge contribution to a lot of the agriculture labor. These kids were working during the pandemic. They were going to work. They couldn't stay home. They cannot oh, work remotely. They don't have accommodations to work remotely. They have to be there in the fields. And so they were exposed to, to different risk. For what I'm hearing, for, especially from Florida, where I collected data in 2022, new data sets, new interviews with participants, is that they fortunately did not get sick. And if the ones who did get sick was very minor, I don't want to say a minor illness, but they were able to go back to work. It didn't set them back. But yes, and even right now in Arizona, there is the Alivio program with the United Farm Worker Association. Workers, so Latino migrant workers, predominantly Latinos, but farm workers who were going to work during the pandemic, at the worst of the pandemic, now they can receive a check to alleviate is what alleviate comes from, to improve, to, to, to help cover some of the expenses that they had during the worst time of the pandemic. Wow. Oh, that's during the pandemic where you were collecting this data and they were going to experience. So the data in Florida, 
that was collected in 2022. And the new study that I have here in Arizona, that is 2023. But I know from my different collaborations and because I volunteered with the United Farm Worker Association mm. that workers who were, you know, out there in the arena, in the field from 2020 to 2022, 2023, they are now receiving uh, a relief program because of the different expenses and risk that they confronted at the worst of the pandemic. Oh, well, that's, well I'm glad that there is relief available and that is being disseminated. One of the things that you wanted to highlight too is a, trying to normalize the experience of academia for people of color. Can you just share with me your thoughts on that? Yes. Oh, I hope there are students, undergraduate and grad students listening to this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are. <laughs> but yes, if you listen to this, this is for you. I will say that for what I've seen and also my own experience as a, as a woman of color, as a Latina woman, and especially an immigrant, is that you will be underestimated. Underestimated for your talents, underestimated for your knowledge. People will make, will make assumptions of you. This is information your audience already knows, but especially the word being underestimated. So, I kind of saw my journey in undergrad and even to my PhD program, like the underdog. You know, you don't know that he's coming or she's coming, but you know, he or she's on the way. <laughs> and deep down, the whole world and your friends, especially your community, we're all rooting for the underdog. So, and it's these constant, not only proving yourself but more than proving yourself, your actions will speak louder than words. So that was my strategy, that my actions will speak louder than my words. So people who underestimated me or my talents or my knowledge or what I could do or not do, I just let them you know, do their thing when I was doing my own stuff. And then eventually, you know, when, when I, I finished my PhD in four years, that was that was a big deal. I, I know a lot of people who finished their PhD in five years, six years, maybe longer, but I did it exactly like I promised the faculty that I will do it. I did primary data collection. I delivered what I promised, and that was very rewarding for me. And I secured a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Missouri, and it was a very competitive fellowship. I believe only four or six people make it every year out of a pool of over 150, 160 applicants. So that that was very rewarding to be able to graduate or even defend my dissertation, knowing that I have a job waiting for me. That that was really good. It's a good feeling. Now, with that feeling of excitement and accomplishment. I wonder what it would have been like had your experience been normalized as a Latina to pursue academia. And there is a lot, there were a lot of little things like that throughout my undergraduate master program during the PhD, for sure. There's a lot of these information, this wealth of information that students don't know. 
And on top of that, you don't have, if you have a mentor, you are lucky that can give you at least pointers. So like, you should apply for this grant. You should apply for this scholarship. Hey, you qualify for these in-state tuition, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it does take very good faculty, especially committed faculty who are thinking about the well-being of students and students of color and see them succeed. And also it, it takes for you to do your homework. But in my case, I mean, I didn't know any better. I was very lucky to have at least a couple of mentors who said, you know, you can get your entire education paid for if you go for a PhD to these to a big R1 institution with a lot of research funding. I know when I was doing my PhD and I would go to conferences, I met students of color who were paying for their PhD out of pocket. And that really hurt me. Mm-hmm. That hurt me that nobody was there for them to tell them or show them other ways that, listen, you don't have to get into so many thousands of dollars into debt to do a PhD, that there's another way, another path to finish a PhD. And I met them. And I, to this day, I still meet PhD students at different institutions across the country who are paying the PhD out of pocket. Um, so my message is there is funding available there are other options. You do not have to pay out of pocket for four or five years of a PhD program. And work with faculty who are engaged in big research grants. You can apply for different scholarships. So don't believe everything people throw at you the first time. Do your diligent research, your funding, and above all, what I tell my students, are you just gonna give away fifty thousand dollars per year? Is that if that's if you have that extra cash, good for you. Then you know, forget about my advice. But if you don't, think about how much money and income you can save by choosing carefully and being very strategic where you are going to pursue your PhD program or your master's program, for that matter. Now, the APA recently put out a press release on September 21st about psychology faculty of color confronted by obstacles to retention. Based on your experience, what were some challenges you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? And I will start with, you know, doing the PhD, the sequence that I had, the PhD, the postdoctoral fellowship, and then the tenure track position at an R1 institution like Arizona State University that you have to enter those doors with your eyes wide open. I will say sometimes, and I saw it with my peers, with some of my classmates, and then some of my colleagues as a postdoctoral fellow, who were also postdoctoral fellows themselves, like you, sometimes you underestimate how much time you need to invest. You know, it's not just doing things for the sake of doing it. Hopefully you have a research that you really care about and that you're willing to lose sleep over it. That was a big one for me. I care so much about the work that I did that I was ready and willing to make sacrifices. And I know people don't talk about, they talk about the long hours of work. You have to work 20 hours to research, to get your stipend, to get your tuition waiver, et cetera, et cetera, health insurance, and that you need to, you know, 
publish and finish your dissertation and graduate. But we don't talk about the personal and family sacrifices you need to make as a woman or as a man of color in order to get there. So I ask your audience and all the students and, and postdoctoral fellows to really open their eyes about measuring and the, the pros and the cons. Like I know there is all these work that needs to be done in order to get a PhD or or um, get my postdoctoral fellowship, but also the sacrifices that you need to make along the way. And that could be a lot. There's, you know, a lot of family time that I, that I cannot bring it back. You know, the, the family time that I lost is lost about moving to specific geographic locations as well. And the people that sometimes you have to let go because of those decisions. So that, it, I will say, it was one of the making sacrifices to get to where you want to be. Um, and then once you, I'm, once you make it to a faculty position, whether it's an R1, R2, or R3 institution, then it doesn't stop. I think there's this misconception that, oh, I made it, I got my, my tenure track position, hooray. I would say that's when the real work begins. Oh, that, boy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know that uh, the dissertation, it's this big milestone, and congratulations to all those PhD, PsyD students who are doing it. But that's just maybe 5%, 1% of all the other 99% that you have to do. If you want to be a faculty, most likely nowadays, you may need a postdoctoral fellowship. Some people go for the track, some people don't. It really depends on how you're feeling. Do you feel you need more training? Then go for a postdoctoral fellowship. Do you feel ready? Then apply directly to your tenure track position or your teaching position if that's what you want to do. But yeah, once I, so I moved from Missouri in July of 2021 for my postdoc, for my tenure track position here at Arizona State. And my strategy was to hit the ground running. That was my strategy. That you need to keep in mind what is the goal. And I know it's a lot of pressure for us because there's very few ethnic minority faculty. I think the last statistics that I saw, and I need to double check, I think it's only less than 2% of all Latino faculties make it to full professor. And that just blew my mind. But you need to remind yourself that you are now part of a very small club of people that are going to get tenure and will continue in the trajectory to make it to full professor. And the way that I saw it, it may vary from person to person, is my community will benefit the most if I get tenure. I can do more if I get tenure than if I don't get tenure. And I know the people listening right now, the postdoctoral fellows, the, the early careers who are beginning their tenure tracks, because I just had my third year review, so I am in the middle of the whole process. You're going to get bombarded with a lot of requests. Can you do this? Can you join this team? Can you mentor this student? Can you blah, 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 blah? So you, you can accept those projects that are going to enrich your research, but also be very mindful of how much can you put on your plate? How much mm -hmm. can you do that it's not going to 
distract you from getting tenure. At the end of the day is getting tenure. So that there's going to be a lot of distractions, a lot of requests for service. And I know, and I know this from experience, students of color, undergrad students, master's PhD students, even postdoctoral fellows, once you're a faculty, they're going to come to you because they need somebody to talk to. And sometimes it's not just about the research. It's not just about the, the schooling. It's not just about the work. They're dealing with personal stuff and they don't have anybody to talk to. Okay. Yes, you can recommend them, you know, how about therapy, but you have to do it in a gentle, kind way. So the people that have come to me, it's not only about work, it's not only about research, especially the students. It's also about I'm, I'm dealing with this personal stuff and I'm trapped. So there is a lot of coaching and mentoring, but also being compassionate with some students and they, they need a role model. And I'm sorry to say, and I and I think it puts a lot of burden on on faculty of color, especially women. I will say Latina women, African American women. It's a lot of pressure on us to support those students, to help them go to the finish line. And it feels that you know we are the only ones, and sometimes that that actually may be the case. But um, you are there for a reason. I don't believe in coincidences like oh it was just you know just that's just the way it is no i think you were you got into university for a specific reason and we will never know the way we touch students lives or people's lives but what we do or as a student told me a few months ago just by being there you have no idea how much you have impacted that person just by being there just by walking down the hallway just by going to the classroom you have no idea how much that means to students. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and helping people examine the heart of why they want to do this work. Do you have any final thoughts? I will say to celebrate every milestone, every small success, bigger, big or small or medium, celebrate it the whole way. Something that I did and I remember this faculty from Florida State University, Dr. Krantz, I will never forget this. He already retired. I think he was close to 80 when he retired. He told me when I was doing my dissertation and he was always see me after 5 p.m. down the hallway, he will check on me, like how, how am I doing, et cetera. And he knew I was doing the dissertation. He made the best suggestion and I, and I keep it to this day. He told me to celebrate every single thing and i asked him like what do you mean he said do you have facebook do you have twitter do you have some instagram do you have some kind of social media and i said yes but what does my facebook have to do with my dissertation like i didn't see the connection and he told me every single step every chapter every page it's a stack of page that you finish from your dissertation you're going to post it on facebook you, you, so for me, I had different chapters because I was doing the manuscript dissertation. So I ended up doing two papers from my dissertation. Now, looking back, that was a lot. That was a lot to do. So for every, but it still have sections. So every section that you finish, he said, you should announce it to the world, announce it to Facebook. I finished chapter one. Hooray. I finished the method section. Yeah. 
And that really made an impact on me because I had never considered to celebrate a very lonely process uh, for all the listeners out there. Doing the dissertation could be one of the, the loneliest, more isolated periods that you have ever experienced. It doesn't have to be that way. It was that way for me. It felt very lonely. It felt very isolated. So when Dr. Kranz normalized the situation that you should celebrate every step, that changed my whole perspective. Mm. It, it changed even my outlook. I started like laughing more and smiling more. So I every section that I finished, I will post it. At, I finished section one. I finished the introduction. I finished the method. I finished the result. And I had to do that for the two papers in the dissertation. So it was amazing the amount of support that I received on Facebook. People were, you know, putting pictures and, and sending messages and like showing their support, like you got this, you know, 10 more pages, five more pages. So I started doing that and you'll be surprised how people reacted. And actually that inspired other people to celebrate their small milestones. So I got a few messages thanking me for posting that because they they were stuck with their dissertation and, and seeing me celebrating every little thing really helped them do the same thing for them. And I did that even with publication. So once my dissertation got published, I posted it. Once the two papers from my dissertation got published, I posted those, at least the first page to Facebook. So, and, and people were very supportive. They wanted to read my work, sign my work. So my advice to all your listeners is to celebrate every single step of, step of the way. I couldn't agree more with that. With the long process, we want to celebrate the wins <laughs> and it really engages people and helps us be in the moment. Cause oftentimes when we're so high achieving, future oriented, it's like, oh, what's the next thing? How do I be more in the present moment and acknowledge the work that we have done ourselves? Well, Dr. Chavez, thank you very much for your time and your message. Any other, anything else? Yes, if I could ask your audience to please follow me on Twitter, or I guess now it's called X, at uh, Carlos Chavez PhD. You can also follow me on my different social medias. I have a Facebook page. I'm happy to receive emails from your audience or students who may be going through a difficult time or actually may want to connect with me and my work or just simply say hello. My email address is Fiorella, F-I-O-R-E-L-L-A dot Carlos C-A-R-L-O-S dot Chavez, C-H-A-V-E-C at A-S-U dot E-D-U. Well, Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We'd love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Zen.